0: I used to go to Washington all the time because Senator Magnuson was there, and Senator Magnuson was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, and so I would go to Washington and uh, get grants and think I was doing my job, and Maggie always gave us pretty much what we wanted.
1: You wrote hundreds of columns. Is there any column that generated the most reaction from the people you were trying to reach?
2: The sermon on uh, Christian faith and homosexuality, in which I preached in favor of accepting homosexuals, gay, and lesbian people. I believe that uh, people are people and that we ought not to judge them on the basis of their sexual orientation.
1: When did you know that you wanted to have a career in broadcasting?
3: Believe it or not, from the time I was eight years old, I found radio to be magic and I wanted to be a radio announcer.
4: That's former Seattle Mayor Charles Royer, the late Reverend Dale Turner of the University Congregational Church, and the late Seattle radio legend Jim French from interviews I had with each of them around 20 years ago. I had a radio show in the 1990s on Kixie, a sister station of KKNW. I had a segment on the show called Profiles of Experience. If you were living in the Seattle area the last quarter century of the 20th century, you would be very familiar with those names. The segment was sponsored by U.S. West, and again, if you lived in Seattle at that time, U.S. West was one of seven regional bells operating companies that was created after the breakup of AT&T. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Charles Royer, mayor of Seattle from 1978 to 1990, this interview took place when he was out of office for about six years. Prior to that he was a news analyst and commentator for King TV. He was the only Seattle mayor in history to be elected three terms. To put that in perspective, three out of the last five mayors of Seattle have served only one term. I'm not very religious, But I read the Reverend Dale Turner's column in the Seattle Times religiously. He wrote from the heart and the brain and possessed a great deal of common sense. He also was a profile in courage, stepping up very early on for the cause of equal rights for gays, his most controversial stand of his career. He talks about this during this interview. Jim French was an institution on Cairo radio from 1959 to the late 1980s, early 90s. He later began a production of Imagination Theater. His syndicated programs are broadcast in over 120 radio stations in the United States and Canada. I also will play an edited version of New Rules from HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, which airs on Friday nights. My interview with former Seattle Mayor Charles Royer coming up in just a
5: moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
1: I had the opportunity to visit with Charles Royer last week to ask him to reflect on his years in office since he has been away from the political arena. Today is the first of a two-part series on Mr. Royer's Reflections. He served three terms as mayor of Seattle between 1978 to 1990. He then became director of the Institute of Politics at Harvard University and returned to Seattle last year and is now a faculty member in the School of Public Affairs and Public Health and Community Medicine at the University of Washington. I asked Mr. Royer, how has government changed since he was mayor? I used to go to Washington all the
0: time because Senator Magnuson. Senator Magnuson was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, and so I would go to Washington and uh, get grants and think I was doing my job, and Maggie always gave us pretty much what we wanted. The relationship between the federal government and uh, the local governments in this case of Seattle, uh, changed pretty dramatically when Maggie left. We lost a lot of Uh, power in the Senate, a lot of authority, but at the same time, other changes were taking place that made that power less relevant. When I really got smart as mayor, like maybe the last 10 minutes I was mayor (laughs) of my 12 years, um, it occurred to me that, that my real resources, my real friends, my allies, my tools to get something done for the city were really the resources around the city, the suburban jurisdictions, the business community. I think the big change is that there's nobody telling you what to do. There are a lot of people who are telling you in these days in politics how you should live your life but nobody's really telling you much what to do with these big problems at home of uh, the environment and and crime and uh, um, economic growth and development and managing growth and transportation they're not telling you really how to do that anymore What was the biggest surprise as being mayor of seattle in terms of the positive well one of our biggest surprises in the election was that we won <laughs> we found that to be very positive but it was a big surprise another uh, very positive surprise to me was the level of quality of people who were in the government because you you know you hear about bureaucracies and you hear about lazy people and people leaning on their shovels but i ran into an awful lot of people who could have been making an awful lot more money and been and been given more respect by being in lots of other professions and lots of other lines of work but they were dedicated and uh, wonderful people
1: to work with how about an area that wasn't so pleasant
0: there were people that i just felt i didn't want to listen to anymore and people deserve you know (laughs) the full attention of their mayor so i think um i got to the point where i didn't feel i could bring the full energy to the job and that was a disappointment to me because i and i didn't really want to stay mayor forever. I knew that you couldn't do that. My original plan was to serve eight years and get out, but um, I obviously didn't get enough done in eight years, and so I decided to, to try to stay another four years and, and really get something done. I'm glad I did because we accomplished some good things, but I think the disappointment was that I, I got, and I was in, in journalism for a long time before I became mayor, and I got pretty cynical at some point in journalism, but I it, that surprised me when that happened to me in my last couple of years as mayor.
1: In being in journalism and going into elected politics and becoming mayor of a city really doesn't happen that often. How did that help you in serving mayor, coming from the journalism background, where kind of you're the watchdog, and now you're in the seat? Well, one of my political heroes, Tom McCall, who was uh,
0: governor of Oregon and uh, had the same job with the same television company I had, he was news analyst at KGW in Portland before he got into public life, and I was news analyst here at King, he said, there ought to be more journalists in politics. You shouldn't just leave it to the lawyers and the teachers. Because journalists, the best of them, um, are pretty idealistic people. That's one of the reasons they get into journalism. Secondly, if they've had full and rich careers, they've been pretty good students of, of government. They've been they've learned about the processes and the way they work, and they've learned about the people and they know the people and they know what is they know about motivations and they know about pressures. So the other thing they have, journalists, you know, that helps them in politics is a very good sense of smell. They know what's wrong. Also, you know, I was in television. It's very easy to get a swelled head in television. Everybody does it who's on the television. People think you're smart, people think you got a great job, and they recognize you in the supermarket. So you get this big head. So my head was already pretty good size by the time I got into the mayor's office, so it couldn't grow much more. But I also knew that um, from my experience in television, that today's anchor man is tomorrow's forgotten guy. So Today's mayor is tomorrow's forgotten guy. So
1: I think it helped me with balance in my own life. I then asked him, as director of the Institute of Politics at Harvard, what he feels about the future leaders of America. Well, the mission of the Institute
0: that I ran, um, it was started by Bobby Kennedy in 1967 as a memorial to his brother. And the mission of the Institute, very simply put, is to inspire young people to get into public life, particularly elected politics. I was um, inspired by the kids I met. Um, I don't know uh, that I have seen a more idealistic uh, lot. I don't think I've seen a more inspired bunch of people in terms of their plans for work, what they want to get out of their lives, what they want to contribute in their communities, what they want to do with their lives. They're just remarkable kids. What doesn't translate at Harvard (coughs) is that used to, is that inspiration, that idealism Uh, It doesn't translate into a desire to go to work for the government, particularly the federal government. Most of our students were interested in getting into the private nonprofit sector or doing something internationally or doing something. um, and, And the most tolerant lot, in some cases it has gone to political correctness, but the most tolerant group of people, young people, and I found this going around the country on this foundation thing. We visited 13 cities. Race is tearing us apart in the country. But the kids are far ahead uh, of the rest of the society on the issue of race and dealing with it and understanding it and living with it and trying to prosper from it. They're way ahead of the politicians. They're way ahead of most older Americans. Uh, and it's a great hope for us that they are. So I found that to be um, really inspirational. and good news on the
1: campus it's a possibility we'll see uh, charles warrior back uh, seeking elective office in the future uh,
0: i certainly don't have any plans to do that um while i had a good experience um i don't know that i could be elected today even if i wanted to i don't think i could say the stuff that people are saying to get elected in politics today for example i always liked taxes Uh, I always thought the government was a positive instrument. I always thought it was there to be used by people uh, in a competition uh, for ideas of how to use it. Those aren't the issues that people are talking about today. Um, So I just don't, there's just not the, it's not the right thing for me, and it's not the right, it's certainly not the right time in politics for somebody like me to come along. I mean, I'd last 20 seconds against that barrage of 30-second commercials who would go through and, and point out how I raised taxes every year I was mayor. And it's true, and I'd do it again
1: former Seattle Mayor Charles Royer, and now on the faculty at the University of Washington. I would like to thank Mr. Royer for sharing his insights over the last couple of weeks on U.S. West Profiles of Experience.
4: Before we get too far into the show, I just want to acknowledge the Apple Cup this past weekend, in which the Huskies once again defeated the Cougars of Washington State. Um, Having been a Cougar fan, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but congratulations to the Huskies. They will be playing for the Pac-12 championship this weekend. If they win, they will go on to the Rose Bowl. And the Cougars will have to wait till Sunday to see what bowl they will play in. And hopefully it will be a prestigious bowl. And I think it will be maybe the Alamo Bowl or the Fiesta Bowl. Either of those would be great, and I think Cougar fans would be very happy about that. But for Washington State, it was quite a season, and it's not over, but uh, it was a great run. Started out in a very tragic manner in the early part of this year, a 10-2 and record. They have nothing to be ashamed about. So with that, let's get to my interview that I had 20 years ago with the Reverend Dale Turner.
1: The retired Reverend Dale Turner pastor for over 50 years, of which he spent 24 of those years at the University Congregational Church, is our guest this morning on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. Reverend Turner is well known for his writings and teachings for people of all denominations.
2: Uh, Reverend Turner, what attracted you to your profession? Well, I uh, planned at the outset of my life, early years, to become an athletic coach, and I studied all through uh, college to that end, getting a major in physical education, but uh, I somehow felt called to the ministry reluctantly, though, because I was uh, shy. I hated to uh, express my opinions publicly, but I wrestled with these problems and decided to go to Yale Divinity School. Went to a church in Lansing, Michigan, worked as a youth leader, and then also coached football in a high school there. Then I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, worked with young people and uh, coached in a junior college. Then decided that we lost so many games, I better go into the ministry.
1: What brought you out to Seattle originally?
2: Well, our church is... deny each uh, local church is autonomous. The pastor where I served retired. I, I came out here and uh, was interviewed and, and uh, was called, and so I've enjoyed every bit of it. Great church and a great 24 years. You wrote
1: hundreds of columns. Is there any column that generated the most reaction from the people you were trying to reach?
2: The sermon on uh, Christian faith and homosexuality in which I preached in favor of accepting homosexuals, gay, and lesbian people, I believe that uh, people are people, and that we ought not to judge them on the basis of their sexual orientation. I guess that sermon stands out because it evokes enough response from people, both pro and con. Do you
1: think society is
2: getting better? Hard. There'd be a fallacy of sampling to uh, say either way. I, I think in our world, there are an awful lot of good people that are making the world better and brighter more loving, but uh, obviously one needs only to read the papers to uh, know there are a lot of rascals still loose in the world.
1: If you could change anything, though, with the snap of a finger, what would that be?
2: Well, I would uh, change racism. I, I think it's deeply embedded in in the human nature, too. Uh, well, uh, we, we hear preaching that all people are created equal, but uh, we see more black people in prison Of national leadership, and uh, I, I say the thing that I would work on most is uh, helping people see that people are people, regardless of the color of their skin, their nationality, or anything else. Whether they're male or female, that people are people and ought to be treated as people, and that's the thing I I hope to keep working on.
1: The retired Reverend Dale Turner of the University Congregational Church. Reverend Turner, thank you so much for spending time on Profiles of Experience.
2: Nice to visit with Paul.
5: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
1: Jim French became a fixture on Seattle radio the year Dwight D. Eisenhower was elected to his first term as president. Jim's award-winning Cairo Mystery Playhouse is still heard on Cairo Saturday and Sunday nights between 9 and 10 p.m. Good morning, Jim, and welcome to Profiles of Experience. When did you know that you wanted to have a career in broadcasting?
3: Believe it or not, from the time I was eight years old, I found radio to be magic, and I wanted to be a radio announcer.
1: Did you have a particular personality that inspired you?
3: Uh, not at that early age. Later on, a disc jockey at a local station in Pasadena, California, became my mentor, and I unconsciously copied every mannerism he had until the rest of the announcers on the staff began to rib him and me. But uh, he was such a help to me, I guess, that i naturally copied him
1: what um criteria jim do you use when deciding on who is going to be a guest on your show
3: i've always felt that it had to be somebody with some relevance to local topics or national topics that were in the news or it had to be a major personality that ruled out first-time authors of novels and so forth.
1: What then makes a successful interview generally and do you have a couple of favorite interviews that you could share with the audience specifically?
3: What makes a successful interview is one in which the interviewee tells a story and as far as a favorite interview I've had many Uh, it's hard to pin down one that would be a a special favorite of mine.
1: Do you like the direction that radio is headed now?
3: Well, tell me what direction radio is headed, and I'll tell you whether I like it.
1: Well, how about talk radio, consolidation of stations?
3: Well, talk radio is, is no longer a direction. It's a destination, and people are beginning to defect from talk radio, little by little. And as that shatters, as does every fad, every trend finally disintegrates in favor of some other direction, Uh, I don't know where it's going as far as uh, the consolidation of stations is concerned. I think this is a bad thing, simply because I think that it gives too much latitude, too much possibility of control of the media in the hands of one organization.
1: What are the career opportunities were you interested in pursuing if it wasn't radio?
3: Well, at the outset, none. I'll... I will say that I considered uh, three other things. One was music. I'm a pianist. Uh, Another one was uh, automotive styling. Automotive styling. Yeah, I was offered a job in Detroit by the Chrysler Corporation back in the 1950s, and I had to make a major decision as to whether I wanted to quit radio and go back there for about the same money I was making here or pursue radio, and I'm glad I stayed with you.
1: Just uh, one final question, Jim. Are you optimistic about the future of this country?
3: Certainly. Certainly. I, I have a lot of faith in the uh, basic common sense of individuals. You see, the basic ordinary person never captures a headline, doesn't get in the news. It's common sense that will run the country.
1: Jim French, thank you very much for spending time in Profiles of Experience.
3: You're welcome.
6: We've seen two major waves of, of human computing interaction since the rise of the Internet. There was you know, network computing, being able to connect with anyone at any point in the world. There was the mobile revolution and the fact that almost all of us have smartphones in our hands and, and in, in many cases in our hands all the time. And the next revolution is likely to be this this shift towards virtual and augmented reality as part of our everyday lives. Cameras are really the most popular feature of our phones today. And what Facebook and Google have done is they have are essentially enhancing the artificial intelligence behind the, the camera view of your phone and looking for features in real time and providing information around what you're seeing. So it could be you're in a store, uh, you pick up a, uh, uh, maybe a gardening tool at Home Depot, and it comes up with reviews of that gardening tool and where, where you can purchase it, what the different options are, um, uh, basically being able to recognize objects and scenes in the environment and provide additional information, even without using a headset. This is just using your phone.
4: That's Adam Shepard, co-founder and CEO of Eight ninths, a virtual augmented and mixed reality firm just offering a glimpse of what technology is today and what we can expect in the future. I'll play my full interview with Adam Shepard in an upcoming show. segment of New Rules, which airs on HBO Friday nights, on Real Time with Bill Maher. This particular segment addresses hypocrisy and religion.
7: And finally, New Rule, now that we know that the least godly man in the world is immensely popular with evangelicals, we need no more evidence that religion is antiquated and dangerous. This October 3rd, I can't believe it, is the 10th anniversary of when my movie, Religious, opened in theaters. (laughs) In 2008. That is the theaters that would show it. Many would not. We've come a long way. Back then, only 16% of Americans identified as non religious. Now it's 26%. You're welcome. <laughs> yes, the fastest growing religion in America is no religion at all. Atheism is booming. Praise Jesus. <laughs> Now, I learned, making religious, that every time you blame religion for so much of the world's misery, religious people say, but Bill, the godless cultures like Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Russia and Mao's China were the worst, and they had no religion. But here's the thing about Nazism, Maoism, and Stalinism. Those were religions, state religions. These dictators didn't get rid of God because they hated religion. They get rid of God because they hated competition. Mm. same with North Korea today they claim to be godless communists but their calendar begins on the day the country's founder Kim Il-sung came to earth from heaven and his son the next ruler Kim Jong-il is believed by North Koreans to have started walking at three weeks old and talking at eight weeks his first time golfing he shot a 38 under par (laughs) with 11 holes in one. He wrote 1,500 books in three years, narrowly beating out Stephen King. (laughs) When he was born, winter turned to spring. He can make it rain based on his mood. He invented the hamburger. I'm not making that up. (laughs) They're making that up. He invented the hamburger. Talk about a Whopper. The reason Trump has an easy sell with evangelicals is because they're hardwired to put faith over reason. Mm. Plus, Trump is the spitting image of the religious con men they grew up with on TV. Mm. He's got Jim Baker's hair <laughs> and Tammy Faye's makeup. He's immune to sex scandals. He had a sham university. He doesn't pay taxes. He personifies that prosperity gospel bullshit they all spin. Yes, the more money I have, the happier you are.
6: <laughs>
7: That's Trump. The private planes, the traveling salvation show, the home that looks like the Sistine Chapel, including a crying statue, Melania.
4: That's Bill Maher with an edited version of New Rules, which airs on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday nights. All the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience, I would like to thank former Seattle Mayor Charles Royer, the Reverend Dale Turner, and radio legend Jim French for resharing their wisdom and experience with us today from interviews I had with them from over 20 years ago. Now, if you'd like to listen to any show for the last year and a half, all you need to do is Google KKNW, then click to Archives. At the bottom of the page, click on to voices of experience and you have arrived at the right place you can listen to past interviews that include former host of npr's all things considered robert siegel and the first elected transgender official in the history of california lisa middleton and a recent show about homelessness that included a visit to the bread of life mission in seattle's pioneer square and also the first american to climb mount everest west seattle's jim whitaker and Chicken Soup for the Soul author and entrepreneur, Mark Victor Hansen. All true voices of experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. You can call me anytime at 206-459-5536. That's 206-459-5536. We can discuss anything about the show. If you have ideas for future programs or maybe you want to be a guest, let me know. Again, that number, 206 206- And one more phone number to give out, and that is if you just want to call and leave a voicemail and make a comment about the program, something you agree with, disagree with, or whatever, that number is 425-653-1166. All I ask you to do is keep it short, like 30 seconds, so I don't have to edit it. That number is 425-653-1166. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you.